Let's do it. Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. Hi, Steve. Hey, Matt. Let's pretend that we have not talked to each other recently. No, let's not do that. So we had a tragic thing. I have been podcasting since 2015, and I have just had a lot of luck. I have another podcast called The Secrets of Story Podcast that I do with my friend James Kennedy. But I had something horrible happen that had never happened to me before in my seven years of podcasting. Zencaster, our recording software, ate an episode. We recorded an episode and the audio was unusable. And it's especially a shame because we had a guest. So for this podcast, Marvel Reread Club, we recorded a whole episode uh, where we just talked about two books. That's all we got around to discussing with our wonderful guest. Should we, I don't know, should we go ahead and say who the guest was? Sure, why not? Yeah, it was uh, David Baldeon. We are both friends with David. When he actually does eventually appear on the show, we will get into our whole history with him. But it was really great to have an actual current working Marvel artist on the show and got to ask him some questions about what that's like currently. But unfortunately, the audio just all got eaten. It I sounded like Max Headroom and there were chunks missing and the whole thing just didn't work. And so we decided that since we weren't trusting our equipment, we didn't want to have him do another episode that might get eaten. So we figured if the next episode is also going to get eaten, let's have it just be the two of us. So even though David had already nicely read two of the books from this month and discussed them with us, we are going to have him back on at a later time once we are fully trusting our stuff again. And he will have to read two more books and do that. So I think we'll have him back to do some of the 1965 annuals, which is sort of, they can be like our thing is we have guests come on when we do annual episodes, which sort of makes sense. So tonight we are going to, we only got to covering two issues with David. So we're just going to redo those two issues. So if our discussion of Amazing Spider-Man number 20 and X-Men number nine seems a little canned, it's because we will be repeating a discussion that we already had with David. Okay, let's go ahead and jump right in with Amazing Spider-Man number 20. So we've talked about how for the first 15 issues of this book, Dicko's and Lee's imagination was just running wild, and they were introducing these huge characters in every issue, these just amazing characters who have fueled the next six years of Spider-Man, and all of the eight Sony Spider-Man movies were all based on characters introduced in those first 15 issues. And then suddenly the spigot turned off, and in issues 16, 17, 18, and 19, there were no new characters introduced, and they were all just reshuffling characters that had previously been introduced. Well, finally, here with issue 20, we have our first new character in five issues. We've got the Scorpion. So, Steve, what do you think about the Scorpion as he appears on the cover of Amazing Spider-Man number 20? I believe you know that one of my pet peeves in comics is when people have masks that, well, especially something where it shows his eyes. He has a big open spot for his eyes. But then it comes right up to his lips and his nostrils. So it looks like it's just molded into his face in the bottom. I believe I've complained about this with uh, Kang previously, but it seems worse somehow with Scorpion. That being said, I, I do think there's an argument to be made that Scorpion is the last of the um, sort of A-list villains that we're going to get from Lee and Ditko in this run. You can make an argument about whether or not he quite is in that category, but he's. He, you can definitely make an argument that he is. Yeah, I would say that 
this is sort of the last gasp. We're still going to get the Molten Man who is, you know, the Molten Man is a character who they'll get a lot of value out of. And technically the Molten Man did appear. They had a character they called the Molten Man in Spider-Man Far From Home. And indeed, there is a character who they call the Scorpion in Spider-Man Homecoming. But it's just they hired the great actor Michael Mandow just as someone who is buying a laser on the Staten Island Ferry. But the only indication that he is supposed to be the Scorpion is that he has a little Scorpion tattoo on his neck. And he does not have this costume. He does not have anything. They also had a character named in the credits, the Tinkerer. Uh, although yes. he was not an alien, uh, you know, he was not uh, behind an alien invasion of it. So when I see this cover, when I see the Scorpion, the first thing I think is scorpions aren't green. You know, I, I, he just doesn't look anything like scorpion. He's green. Scorpions aren't green. He's got a tail. But, you know, so he's got this huge tail, which curls up behind him like a scorpion's tail. But it doesn't have a sting. Now, much, much later in the 90s, I think, they will finally give him a little sting in his tail. They will give him uh, like a laser that shoots out of his tail or something. And, you know, like, oh, that's right. I do remember that. I think that may have been in the 80s. Blades or something. I think I no. I, I think I remember some kind of blaster or something like that. I don't know. But in this original version of the costume, he has this big, thick tail that he uses to whap people with. He swings it around and whaps people with it, which is not what scorpions do with their tails. He's more of he's sort of more like Tyrannosaurus Rex man. Like he he whaps his tails. He uses his tail to whap people like a Tyrannosaurus Rex. He's green like a Tyrannosaurus Rex. He uh, it really makes no sense to call him the scorpion. Where does your information come from about the color of a T-Rex? Oh, I know. <laughs> also, uh, let me also point out one thing I hadn't noticed earlier, but I just noticed this moment on the cover is look at the little grotesque that's at the bottom right hand corner of the cover. Ditko didn't have to do that. He did that for us. <laughs> He, he did that for us. <laughs> Everything he does, he does for us. Yes, he is an amazing artist. He knows how to deliver value. All right, so I will go ahead. I should go ahead and start a clock because I'm already spending way Please. too much time. We pick up where we left off last issue where Spider-Man realizes he's being followed by a mysterious dude. We know this is bad because he's got Phoenicia's blinds, shadows crossing his face. He then changes to Spider-Man, follows the guy who was following him. Then eventually he sort of gives up and goes into work at the Daily Bugle, only to discover that the dude is there and is in fact reporting back to Jameson. And he's like, oh, I guess that dude was working for Jameson. What was going on? Meanwhile, we see before they come in that Jameson is reading about some nutty scientist claims to have found a way to cause artificial mutations in animals. Hmm, big deal. Now, if someone discovered an anti-Spider-Man serum, that would be a story. Oh, how I hate that web-spinning, wall-crawling mass menace. So this is the big problem with this issue, is that J. John Jameson is just completely out of character in a way that will really mess up the character for many years to come, that they'll have to have occasional stories dealing with, yes, J. John Jameson, you've always used the power of the press against Spider-Man, but what about that time you actually just flat out tried to kill him? And what about that time when you went ahead and paid the scientist to turn your private investigator into the Scorpion and just flat out try to kill Spider-Man? Now, course, this isn't the only time J.J. Jameson tried to do that. He later deals with a guy named Smythe to create a robot called the Spider Slayer. So this isn't the only time he does this, but both of those instances are just tremendously out of character for J.J. Jameson. Suddenly he is this real villain. He is, you know, and I feel like they've always been good, except for these two rare instances of having him be someone who would not do this. 
Yeah. We may not agree with his journalistic ethics, but I think that he still considers himself an actual legitimate jur- journalist. And this does not fall into that category. So, uh, and also the uh, the scientist they've got here who's doing this stuff, this basically sounds like the kind of gene splicing that people these days, you know, it's like the whole, oh, we put the gene that makes a jellyfish glow into a mouse and look, the mouse glows. It's basically that sort of work, uh, but back in the 60s. So then uh, Pete, meanwhile, meets Ned Leeds again. Betty is, Betty is still hanging out with Ned Leeds and Pete is still being genuinely somewhat sanguine about it, but he's at least now thinking like, I'm actually not very cool with this, even though I'm seeming to be cool with this. But then he finds out that Ned has been reassigned to go cover the situation in Europe. And Pete is happy to hear that. And then Betty says, why don't you come with me to the airport to go see him off? And Pete thinks that's really, they can't be serious about each other if they invite me along. So Pete's going to go to the airport with her, which means he can't figure out why this dude was following him and is now working with Jameson. Well, it turns out that Jameson is now tracked down the scientist, says, instead of having this guy follow Spider-Man, and he reveals that the reason he was, well, not following Spider-Man, he had this guy following Peter Parker because he wanted to know where Peter Parker gets his photographs from. And so he hired a private detective to trail Peter Parker to try to figure that out. But now that he's found this guy, he's like, forget it. Hey, private investigator Mac Gargan, why don't you do something else for me? Why don't you shave your head and let me turn you into a scorpion man? And Mac Gargan's like, okay, you know, your money. <laughs> if that's what you want, um, I'll go ahead and do it. So I guess JJJ pays the scientist $10,000 and Gargan $10,000. They shave his head. They have him take a bunch of serums. They create a whole scorpion suit for him. And he's like, uh, this is awesome. There's one thing about the Scorpion's uh, origin that is very similar to Spider-Man's, and it's something that you called out when it happened with Spider-Man originally, is that, you know, Peter Parker supposedly got all the powers of a spider, but not really, because he couldn't shoot webs. So he had to go and invent that synthetically himself. And here, similarly, it's like, we'll give you the power of a scorpion, except we've got to build you a mechanical tail. It's like, well, right. then, how am I like a scorpion? <laughs> you know? I don't have an exoskeleton. I don't have big claws. I don't have a tail. You know, uh, I'm just strong. That's basically the whole thing. Yeah, they basically just give them super strength. Then there's a great panel where Betty and Pete are at the airport on the tarmac saying goodbye to Ben. It says, how long will that be gone, Betty? She says, at least six months, Peter. And he says, oh, that's too bad. And then he thinks, hooray. So then, <laughs> Betty says, thanks for writing with me, Peter. I'll see you later. And he thinks, Ned Leeds is a great guy, but I hope he stays in Europe forever. So, like, he's still, he clearly is not head over heels in love with Betty because he's not that broken up about some other guy who she is clearly interested in. But he still wants her. He's still like, I still want, you know, to have her for my own, but I'm not really going to be broken up about it if I don't, seems to be what he's feeling. Yeah, I think so. Okay, so then... Spider-Man's back. He is hassling JJJ a bit. And then JJJ is like, uh, just you wait. Somebody's about to attack you. And then sure enough, the Scorpion, as soon as Spider-Man leaves, he is attacked by the Scorpion. We have a bunch of panels of he and the Scorpion pounded on each other. <laughs> At one point, he covers the Scorpion in webs. And the Scorpion says, I just remembered something, Webhead. Scorpions have powerful pinchers, which they use at will. And since I have a Scorpion's powers, so he didn't know he had, his, his hands haven't turned into pincers, pinchers. I never know how to pronounce it. His hands have not turned into pincers, but he somehow realizes if scorpions have pincer powers, I must have them too, even though my hands seem to be totally normal. And even though I did not have a tail, even though that's part <laughs> of a uh, scorpion's powers and yeah, all, all sorts of stuff there. And I, I do not think, and once again, you know, 
probably be wrong, uh, that this ever shows up again about him being able to, you know, snip things with his finger. So then, as always, I feel like just as the Marvel Universe has gone on, that Stan Lee has been having more and more trouble justifying this, the fight always breaking up on page 11 and then resuming again a couple of pages later. But so then in this case, it sort of makes sense. The scorpion tosses Spider-Man into a water tower. I always like water towers. And he says, okay, useless, you can sleep it off in that empty water tower. I've got other things to do now. And then, you know, J.J. Jameson and then is like, dude, this wasn't the plan. You were supposed to bring him to me. But at this point, Scorpion's realizing like, hey, I've got real superpowers now. Why am I doing anything for Jameson? I should be out robbing banks. So then he leaves Spider-Man there, goes out, robs an armored car. At this point, still well, the scientist is like, oh, no, I've got to try to, you know, get him to take this serum to change back. But the Scorpion has no interest. And uh, he still well actually climbs up the side of a building trying to get to the Scorpion and then throws the serum at him and misses and then falls and dies. Spider-Man catches back up to the Scorpion and starts fighting him. Now, thankfully, we have on page 15, J. Jonah Jameson suddenly realizes how out of character he's been acting the whole issue. He's like, just to satisfy my own personal hatred, I tried to destroy Spider-Man. And in so doing, I've unleashed a far worse menace upon the world. So I'm glad that he has belatedly realized that he has been acting out of character. Scorpion and Spider-Man get in a fight. And I gotta say, Spider-Man's really taken a lot of damage. This is a really wonderful fight scene that Ditko has drawn for us. And yeah, uh, you really get the feeling that this tail that Scorpion has is like a battering ram. It's like getting hit by a log when it comes and gets you. And uh, it, that really comes across. And, um, you know, this is just one of uh, one of Ditko's masterful fight scenes here. I really like it. Really is. So then Scorpion finally says, hey, I'm going to go attack J.J. Jameson um, because it's really this whole thing is his fault. Uh, J.J. Jameson, you know, quickly pushes Betty out of the room. And then Spider-Man finally catches up to the Scorpion in the office, defeats him. Spider-Man is so beat up afterwards. He's like, the only way I'm going to get away with looking so beat up is if I also beat up my clothes and then tell everybody I got in a rough football game in his suit and sweater vest. Flash is then making fun of him. And Pete looks really angry at flash he looks like he is really wants to have it out but uh but uh flash walks away and he does not get beat up and so then spider-man is getting fixed up by aunt may or rather peter parker is and then peter parker finds out that everybody now thinks that jameson is a big hero jameson has of course written about the whole thing saying scorpion caught jameson as hero and even betty thinks that jj jameson was a big hero she's like did you hear what happened peter mr jameson saved me from the scorpion by pushing me out of the room in time and uh, Spider-Man's like, glad to hear it, Betty. What do you want to do? Chip in for a medal? There you go. <laughs> then that's it. That's the end of the issue. Scorpion is kind of on the bubble in terms of his major list of uh, his rogues gallery. But in terms of the fight scenes in here, in terms of Peter Parker's characterization and what he's got going on with Betty and Ned Leeds, all of that really is a really solid issue. But yeah, as you said, J. Jonah Jameson is more diabolical than his usual jerk self yes yes like you know this is just if he has been wanting to actually kill spider-man all of this time he has not been going i mean now to be fair you know jj doesn't say go kill spider-man he says bring spider-man to me so he can be unmasked but he can't be that surprised when it turns into a fairly murderous fight and the whole thing is just totally out of character so that's my big issue with this issue but it is a nice action issue lots of Slam in action. I think that the Ned, Betty, Peter love triangle is giving us a little bit of juice. It's resulting in some fun situations. 
and it's a perfectly fine issue. All right. So are we ready to move on to Fantastic Four? Yes. Fantastic Four number, what are we on here? 34. We see on the cover that the Fantastic Four is all fighting each other. It says a house divided. And in the foreground is this guy who looks like Blofeld, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> you just see him from behind and he's in this incredibly ornate chair at this office desk. And you just see his bald head in front of him. He says, can you guess what makes Gideon the most powerful foe of all? Oh, I need to go ahead and start my timer, don't I? Yep. Um, Let's see. All right. There we are. So. And for some uh, reason on the cover, Sue's force field is green. This is the first and only time I think she will ever have a green force field. But I guess they decided it just wasn't colorful enough if uh, they did it without color like they normally do. So we begin with Thing opening up a package from the Yancey Street gang. And it turns out it's a Beatles wig. So this was uh, the end of 1964, cover date 1965. But uh, Beatlemania, I guess, was in full swing at this point. And uh, so you can't, you know, you can't leave that behind if you're uh, trying to get in on all the stuff the kids are into. And eventually we do get to see Ben try on the Beatles wig, which is quite funny. Although one thing I will uh, I will point out is there is a panel here in that sequence where, uh, you know, Thing had gotten mad and was fighting uh, Reed and fighting Johnny. And then Alicia says at one point, it's all right, Reed. I think I'm beginning to get used to Ben's temper tantrums now. <laughs> it's like, yes. uh, that line didn't age well. <laughs> no. I'm sure they meant well. But um, so then we meet Gideon and there is a really nice giant splash panel on page four where we see this incredibly palatial office with this ridiculously large desk and this Baroque stuff all through the office. You see, once uh, the again, the throne, man, the throne. Yes. Oh, yeah, that's right. An enormous chair. He looks like, uh, who is that Lily Tomlin character who would sit in the giant chair? Yes. yes. <laughs> anyway, so it's just supposed to be bringing across just how insanely wealthy this guy is. But I gotta say, at this panel, I think it's just an absolutely gorgeous panel, the best panel in the issue. But I don't think there's enough ink in this panel. I think that Chick Stone gets to panels like this and he just he just gets overwhelmed by the number of lines that Kirby has drawn. And he does not go back in with his brush and make this panel really come to life in the way he should. Yeah, I guess there aren't many spotted blacks in this, are there? No. Yeah, that was one of my weak points as an inker as well. So. <laughs> there you go. Anyway, so Gideon is basically, think Elon Musk or uh, Jeff Bezos or whatnot, right? He is... Uh, so rich, and all he wants to do is just have more money and more power. He uh, calls up some of his other rival, super, ultra, ridiculously rich guys, and they come up with a whole thing where if Gideon can destroy the Fantastic Four in a certain amount of time, then these other people will give up their business empires to him, and he will then basically have a monopoly on business empires throughout the world. Yes. Uh, so he then puts his plan into motion. We see that one day repo men just start showing up at the Fantastic Four's headquarters and they're like taking apart the Fantastic car and going ahead and hauling off their missile and all sorts of stuff. I'm kind of like, how did they get? Don't you have security measures in this place? Well, I, mean, I never understood yeah. what's going on here because Reed, they tell him like Ben Grimm signed off on us doing all this and that's sort of how they got in. And then it turns out, well, it's because Ben Grimm thinks that Reed is a scroll, 
And it's like, well, even if you think Reed's been replaced by a squirrel, why does that mean you would sell all of Reed's stuff? Like, that's not like it's a squirrel. I'm going to sell his stuff. Like, wait, what? That doesn't really make any sense to me. But I, I, well, I, I think what he says is Ben Grimm ordered us to take his share of your equipment. So essentially, okay. he's like, that's it. I'm out of this combo. You guys can can go, you know, I'm not working for this scroll. Still doesn't seem to make much sense. But, you know, one way or the other, uh, Gideon has convinced Thing that reads a scroll. Anyway, they start fighting. Meanwhile, Sue returns home to the home she shares with Johnny in the Burbs. And she finds the house wrecked and kind of burning and uh, sees some graffiti on the wall. Says, I am fighting Dr. Doom. Can't hold out any longer. Beware, sis. Doom's robot. Uh, why he wrote that on the wall, I'm not entirely sure. Um, but one way or the other, he did not actually write that. This was done as part of Gideon's plan. So then Johnny gets home and Sue thinks that he is a Doombot. So now they're fighting. So we're going to have a bunch of the Fantastic Four fighting each other throughout this thing. We then see that Gideon has a wife who seems to very genuinely love him. Uh, for reasons that are beyond my understanding. <laughs> and he's got a kid who just wants the love of his father. And his father thinks of himself as he's doing this to build this ultimate business empire to be able to give the, his kid the world, right? But his kid, meanwhile, is reading a Fantastic Four comic. And he's like, uh-oh, well, you know, I'm still going to destroy the Fantastic Four because that's the important thing is to go ahead and get conquer the world to give to my son. It's interesting. This is very much a COVID era comic because the <laughs> moral of this whole book is don't work from home. It's just, it does not, it does not make sense to work from home. <laughs> your family will stick their head into your office and listen to what you're doing and will mess with you. And what's interesting, even when he's working from the office, he's talking to all of his fellow business leaders in something that looks very much like a Zoom call. It looks yes. very much like a COVID era Zoom call where they've all got their faces there on the video phones and sort of looking ahead to 2020. But then he's later, he's home. And for some reason, I don't know why he's doing this work from home. He should be doing it from the office. But he's in his home saying like, yes, we will destroy the Fantastic Four. And his kid is right there. His kid, who we know is idolized as the Fantastic Four, are just overhearing all of this, which is his whole downfall. Just don't work from home, dude. Yeah, well, I think once you reach a certain level of wealth that, uh, you know, lots of common sense just goes. <laughs> yes. So anyway, the Fantastic Four is all fighting each other. We have a nice fight scene that lasts for many, many pages. One highlight of it is when Ben jumps out of their skyscraper window to follow Reed, who has turned out into a, you know, personal parachute. And uh, uh, Thing is bouncing back and forth between surfaces of the buildings and sort of a parkour descent to the street. And at one point, Reed is like, <laughs> Reed is like, oh, I got to defeat the rest of the Fantastic Four. Hey, somebody just left a science fiction gun lying here. I'll pick it up and use it. I hope it does something good. And <laughs> That's right. What, whatever this weapon is, perhaps it will make them stop. <laughs> it's really, really not well thought out there, Reed. You're, you're supposed to be smarter than this. Turns out it has been left there in the hopes that he would fire it and blow everybody up, which he does. And they're all knocked unconscious. 
Yes. Uh, so then it looks as though he has won. Uh, they're now going to go in there and essentially finish them off. But then the kid overhears all of this and realizes his dad is going to destroy the Fantastic Four. So he heads off and commandeers one of the limos to uh, go and warn the Fantastic Four. Meanwhile, what Gideon's final plan is here is he has recreated Doom's time machine. And he is planning on sending the the uh, Fantastic Four back into the far, far past where they would not be able to have any technology to get back into real time. So this is being done. Meanwhile, you know, Gideon's wife is still like, oh, you know, why can't we spend more time together? Then he finds out that his kid was going there to try to save the Fantastic Four. He's like, oh, no, 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 not that. Um, so, uh, also we see Mr. Fantastic in a very plastic man kind of thing in this issue where he turns his legs into wheels and he's wheeling himself around, which doesn't yes. seem very Mr. Fantastic. Seems much more plastic man to me. Well, the kid will not be deterred and, uh, gets into the building and then he ends up running into the room with the time machine thing and the kid ends up disappearing along with Thing into the time travel device. At this point, Gideon realizes what he's done. And then, let's see, how do they end up getting back? Wife told us this whole story. Ah, that's right. Um, actually, Thing and Tommy had not actually gone through uh, the time portal. But, um, you know, the Fantastic Four had finally understood the plot and what was going on. And so they uh, just made him think that he had lost his kid uh, in this way of doing things. And then finally, he sees the error of his ways and he hugs his son and he's going to go spend more time with his son and his wife. And he realizes that their love is more important than owning the entire world. And would but that that were <laughs> an outcome that we could hope for, right? Yes. So, yeah, this is a fun issue. It really does feel quite current in yes, many ways. Yes, it does. It, this is very much a one of the actual sort of villains we're dealing with here in 2023. It says, so the story ends when they go, there you have it. Our first story in a dog's age without a costume supervillain. Yeah, it's sort of very much a change of pace. And they seem to be aware that this is a change of pace. It's like, oh, can we do an episode without a costume supervillain? Can we just do a sort of real world type of menace dude who doesn't wear spandex and is just, you know, has his normal name and living his normal life? In, indeed, whenever you see like people will do like, oh, here's a drawing of all of the Kirby Fantastic Four villains. And Gideon always just does not fit in with this group at all. You know, it's like, who's that just dude there? But, um, you know, but I think that it's good. I think it makes for a good issue. And, you know, I kind of wish, you know, that he had taken himself a silly name and given himself a silly costume. It might have been more fun. But it's they have earned the right to do something a little different. And I, I like it. I, I I like the fact that he's not a costume supervillain. You know, he, he in some ways is more dangerous than many of their costume supervillains. Uh, you know, maybe not Dr. Doom, but certainly, you know, Pacebot Pete. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just could never not name drop him. Uh, then uh, also in this issue, there is a pinup page uh, where the Fantastic Four is all apparently near Yancey Street. There's a big boarded up uh, property that has painted on it, Fantastic Four, go home. And the Fantastic Four all looking around very suspiciously. Thing says, this is very embarrassing. 
But then in the background, you can see that there's actually Dr. Doom with a bucket of paint and a paintbrush, that he's the one who, who scrawled Fantastic Four Go Home in on Yancey Street. Just to mess with the Fantastic Four. <laughs> Just to mess with the Fantastic Four. Yeah, this is, you know, usually the... Uh... The pinups are not my favorite pages in these, but this is one of my favorite. This is probably my all-time favorite Kirby pinup page in a Fantastic Four issue. I, I uh, agree with you. Delightful. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm on the same page. But Dicko's pinup pages are always better than Kirby's, and Dicko, not to be outdone, will do an even more amazing pinup page in Doctor Strange this week, which we'll cover when we get there. So let's go ahead and go on to Journey into Mystery number 112 with Thor. So this is... A legendary issue. This is a very funny issue, the funniest issue of Thor that we've had up until this point, and uh, one that will inspire other funny issues later down the road. Right away, we begin with a very silly opening page where it says, The Thor battles the Incredible Hulk, a Stanley Jack Kirby Marvel masterwork, inking by Chick Stone, lettering by Sam Rosen, excellent inking by Chick Stone as always, where we have Thor is flying up as two rival fan clubs are fighting on the street of you know young uh young ruffians and one of them has a big sandwich board placard of thor's face and the other one has a big sandwich board placard of the hulk's face and they're like thor is stronger than anybody yeah take away thor's hammer and what do you got yay hulk thor is the greatest no one can beat up all green skin and thor then says like whoa, whoa 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 this is something that demands my attention so then he lands amongst them and sort of sits sits stagely on the on the curb along with them and says, and they're like, who would win in a fight between you and the Hulk? And he says, now, if Stanley wants to do an issue where Thor fights the Hulk, okay, that makes sense. But why not just do an issue in which Thor fights the Hulk? Instead, at this point, Stanley is so concerned with continuity that Stanley is like, well, I can't just have Thor fight the Hulk. The Hulk's in often his own adventures, often his own book, and I can't just use him as a guest star anymore. And I think he is influenced by the fact that if we assume that Steve Dicko is doing most of the plotting, that Dicko has chosen to end every issue of the Hulk on a cliffhanger. And the Hulk is a continuing story, a continuing serialized story that goes from cliffhanger to cliffhanger. And there's just no time to have an actual Thor Hulk fight. And so well, instead, I, 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 I will point out this did not stop him with Rick Jones. Yes, right. That's true. <laughs> that is true. Rick Jones is all over the place. Let me go ahead and set myself a five minute timer here. By oh, the way, I, don't, don't worry. I'm I, I'm I've got you being timed. I've got 10 minutes for the whole thing here. But bizarrely, so they're like, all right. Let's do a Thor Hulk fight issue, but they have to shoehorn it into their previous fight. So this is just our first ever director's cut of a Marvel comic where they're like, hey, let's go ahead and look at the deleted scenes from Avengers number three, the last time that Thor and Hulk fought. And Thor then tells them, oh, if you want to know who had been a fight between me and Hulk, let me tell you about the last time we fought. And they're like, oh, we know about that. It's like, no, you don't. There's stuff that you did not know about that fight. And I'll tell you more about it. So then we jump back to this fight, we're in flashback, and then it reveals for the first time that Thor and Hulk got broken off from the main fight, and as we did not see in that Avengers issue, they had a massive sort of side fight on their own in that cave where they were fighting, and Thor goes ahead and relies on his father Odin and says, Odin, I tell you what, why don't you go ahead and remove the enchantment from my hammer for just five minutes so I can really have it out with this guy? And not have my hammer factor in. Because, of course, the kids were just going like, well, take away his hammer. What's he got? Well, now we're going to find out what you have when you take away the hammer. I got to say, by the way, Thor's eyes look absolutely terrible on page five, panel three. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
that's a that is an example of two eyes not looking like they belong in the same head either well, whether it, we want to blame kirby or stone you know you, all, you always say two eyes that don't look like they belong in the same head i think it just that which <laughs> i just think it's like basically he looks wall-eyed yes right yes um so then we get then just a big knockdown drag out thor hulk fight which is a lot of fun and it's fun to have him not relying on his hammer and they're interacting with the environment, which is always good. Uh, they're, you know, remember they were in a sort of strange cave with, yeah, they had old World War II munitions were in the cave. And so they're using those and throwing them at each other. But of course, the big problem here is that Stan Lee doesn't want to say who would win a fight between Thor and Hulk because he likes the fact that each of these people have their own fan clubs and that each of their fan clubs are, you know, convinced that their guy would win. So, um, so then. As it turns out, the fight, believe it or not, ends inconclusively, as all of these fights always do. And eventually, they get folded back into the main fight in Avengers number three, and then they get separated without uh, fully determining who would have won. And finally, one of the kids is, of course, not pleased about this and says, but you still haven't told us who's the strongest. And Thor says, I can only guess at the answer, but I can offer no proof. Therefore, I shall say nothing. Or the God of Thunder does not scatter his words rashly to the wind. And then he takes off and thinks that someday he will, there will be an ultimate uh, deciding battle between he and Hulk. And then we just briefly cut to the actual Hulk. I guess this is in keeping with the rule of they had to show the real Spider-Man in the Spider-Man guest issue of Avengers. And now they have to show the real Hulk here just very briefly, just in three panels where the Hulk is, as it so happens, thinking about Thor and thinking I must find Thor someday and must crush and I must crush him as only I can. Nothing can stand in my way. Nothing can defy my might. So uh it says someday we'll meet again and Thor will be smashed forever. So that is this issue. This is a crazy issue. What did you think of this issue? Uh sh- should I go ahead and pause your timer at this point? Yeah, to pause save my timer. Time for- okay, I'll pause your timer there. So as a fight issue, I really, really like a lot of it. Page four, first panel. That is a panel that should get more play than it does. Yeah. With uh, Submariner and Iron Man grappling with each other in the in the very near foreground, with Giant Man and Hulk and Thor grappling in the background, and it's just it's just a, a fantastic um, you know image there, uh, and. You know, that kind of stuff is really cool. Yeah, it is a little bit odd to be like, oh, yeah, so here is another part of the fight that you never saw. But, you know, I'm fine with that. It does seem a little bit weird that he's upset that he's, you know, thinking, oh, I got to. Well, if if your reading of this is correct, you know, oh, well, you know, I can't mess with continuity by having him show up now when he's doing that with Rick Jones all the time. And he's like, no, now he's on the East coast. Now he's in New Mexico. It's like, this is some high school dropout, right? Like, how is he, how is he doing this? Um, But yeah, no, I, I I like this issue. I I don't really have anything against it. Yes. I, uh, and of course, Odin has a majestic helmet. I saw you speculating on Facebook. It's like, that's snow on his helmet. Like, no, I think it's just plumage, but, uh, but, but, but the things they colored it white. And it looks all fluffy, like it's like cotton balls there, <laughs> there or something like that. You know, I would be expecting something that sticks up more or has some more color to it. But it really does look like somebody just, you know, scoops snow onto his uh, onto his helmet there. 
By the way, I was trying to look up what the name of the kind of helmet is that has the little mohawk plumage back there. And apparently there isn't one particular name for it. You know, the styles of helmets all have to do with how they cover your face. And just that's a kind of decoration you can have on any of them. So I was like, oh, okay. Because I was fascinated by that and trying to look that up. One of the best things to come out of this issue of Thor is that it sets up one of my all-time favorite issues of Thor, uh, which was sort of a sequel to this issue. Now, usually, you know, when you talk about a great run of comics like Walt Simonson's run on Thor, you're like, oh, you know, it's wasn't that so wonderful? And it's like, oh, but then occasionally he had to take a month off and you had a fill-in issue. And oh, fill-in issues are so terrible. Well, one of my all-time issues of Thor is a fill-in issue in the middle of Simonson's run on Thor where the whole, it was... Um, I think written by Bob Harris and it was penciled by Jackson guys. And it was all about Hercules and Hercules mm-hmm. runs into some kids who are fighting about who would win in a fight between Hercules and Thor. And Hercules starts telling them a story about how much he beat up Thor and how easily he was beating Thor. And then he realizes that the bullies are happy about this. And the kid who is being bullied is unhappy about this. And so suddenly Hercules, even though it pains him to do so has to to say, oh, no, no, but then Thor beat the crap out of me and and Thor uh, humiliated me. And uh, he sees that this makes the bullied kid happy and makes the bullies unhappy. And it is really just an absolutely delightful issue of Thor and was very much directly inspired by this issue. So I was happy to have, I feel like that is one of the best things to come out of this issue. Yes. So then let's go ahead and jump back to Tales of Asgard. Uh, Tales of Asgard, the coming of Loki. So we're going to have a series of things about Loki here. And this is one of the most infamous panels in Marvel history we are about to get to. Uh, The Coming of Loki, majestically written by Stanley, magnificently drawn by Jack Kirby, masterfully, masterfully inked by Vince Coletto, (laughs) masterfully, and magnanimously lettered by Art Simek. Now, I don't know what your definition of masterfully is, but this is on page two of this story. So the story basically involves Odin, this is a story that showed up in the Thor movie where Odin is fighting Lofi the, what kind of giant is he? He's a storm giant. Storm giant, I believe. Lofi the storm Although giant. I, I think I think in the movies they turn him into an ice giant, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, frost giant. Yeah, here, here's a, here he's a storm giant. They have a big fight, and then at the end he defeats Lofi and then finds that Lofi had a runty little baby who he, I guess, was planning on just exposing, was planning on to just... Uh, just killing because it was such a runty little baby. So Odin decides to adopt him and raise him as his own. And that becomes Loki. So that is, this is our first flashback to the origin of Loki. But first we have on page two, in the middle of the fight between Odin and Luffy, whenever people talk about how terrible Vince Coletta is, this panel always comes up because originally it was a panel. Now, granted, it was a busy panel where Odin is shoving his hammer up against the massive sort of worm mace of Lofi. And they're each talking, and you can see Odin's little thought balloon pointing at his head, and you can see Lofi's little thought balloon pointing at nothing, because Vince Gotta has erased Lofi's head. (laughs) And he just decided, that's too much work to ink. I'll just go ahead and erase it. So you've got Lofi's hand and his mace and his face which was supposed to be somewhat occluded by his mace is missing and his speech balloon is pointed to nothing now this is always whenever people reprint this and i've talked before about how when they had when the museum of science and industry had their exhibit about how wonderful marvel is the one thing they had that was not wonderful about marvel was vince coletta and they had a whole wall about how terrible vince coletta was and it included this panel it showed us this panel as inked by coletta 
and it showed us the original pencils. So this frequently happens as people go through these Thor comics and they find examples of here's Thor comics in which Coletta erased things rather than ink them. And we know because we have photocopies of Kirby's pencils. And I'm like, how do we have these photocopies of his pencils? Did he have a photocopy machine at his house? I mean, they had just been invented in 1962. I'm sure they were insanely expensive. I'm sure I'm sure that Marvel had a photostat machine, which is what preceded Xerox machines. So, I mean, I, I'm sure they just made photostats of all the pencils that came in before sending them out to wherever well, so in case they got lost or whatever. This brings up the big question for me of, you know, obviously, whenever these things are reprinted, they're always recolored and often recolored garishly. If we can go back and recolor all these old comics when we reprint them, why can't we re-ink them? If we have photocopies of the pencils, can we re-ink the pencils and have finally get good inking on all these Tales of Asgard backups that were inked so atrociously by Coletta? Theoretically, I, I, I guess we could. Yeah. Uh, you know, float that idea to somebody. <laughs> uh, and But, what you know, my understanding, and I think this came up when we were talking with Steve Bunch, that, uh, you know, a lot of the original art that was art and, you know, photo stats and everything else that were sitting around the Marvel offices, at one point, a bunch of them were stolen. Uh, yeah. And so it's, you know, I don't know if they, and, you know, it probably wasn't stored with much, um, you know, I'm sure it got disorganized uh, at various points over the years, too. Possibly you could do something like that, but who knows how uh, extensive you could get with it. Somehow the Kirby fans have been able to go through and compare his pencil pages to the ink pages and find all of these instances of Coda doing this. So somehow somebody has access to the original pencil pages. So one thing that I've heard about Coletta's process is that he, because, you know, this was all just making money for him and he was uh, had a reputation for being fast and being able to crank stuff out, he would set himself a timer as he sat down to do each successive page. And, you know, I've heard it was like a half hour or something like that. But it was like he had a timer and he would go and he would ink. And when the timer went off, he would erase whatever he hadn't gotten to yet. Yep. <laughs> That's the system that he had. And when you're talking about obscuring things, um, I don't know whether anyone's brought this up, but I would bet dollars of donuts that on page four, panel one, he added that spear in the top right corner of the panel. So here, that's your, that's your, that's your timer there. But he, that he added that spear that's pointing down and to the left from the top right corner of the panel because it covers up a storm giant's face entirely and obscures part of another one's face in profile. And we do not see anyone who would be holding that spear. Um, it just looks to me like that was just added there. Like, I don't want to do this face. You know, <laughs> let me just put this big spear in front of it. Sure. Okay. Now we're good. <laughs> that, that is possible. I'm not sure that's the case, but, uh, but at this point I trust Coletta as far as I can throw him. So sure. Let's, uh, let's add that to his list of sins. Although I, I will say that on page four, panel two, I like the textured effect for the uh, dusk for the dusk sky in the background there that uh, I, I will I will gi- I will give him that Well, you know, we're going to be giving uh, Coletta so much grief that uh, when, you know, when as a broken clock, he is right once or twice a day, uh, I will go ahead and call it. So okay. on the last panel of uh, Tales of Asgard here. Uh, and this is one thing I've often thought of. They always talk about Loki as being uh, Thor's half-brother. And I was like, wait, I thought he was like an adopted brother. 
And so here's where we get that for the first time. Uh, the proclamation Odin makes. Hear me, legions of Asgard. From this moment hence, I proclaim Loki, son of Odin, half-brother to my well-beloved Thor. For better or worse, Loki is forever an immortal of Asgard. This I have proclaimed, so be it. Now, <laughs> let me point out, I, I think have you already seen what I posted about this on Facebook here? Um, well, there is an obvious reading here. <laughs> Thank you. So, you know, it's like half-brother. Wouldn't he be his new brother? His, you know, if you wanted to put a, a, a you know, an adjective on it, an adoptive brother, but generally just a new brother. Um, but, you know, there is another possibility that, hey, this is an Asgardian-sized son of a storm giant couple. That's odd. <laughs> and... Then Odin goes and invades this place, and lo and behold, Laufe is killed while he's there. Well, that's convenient. And then he goes and finds his runty son, who's the size of, As of an Asgardian. And he says, hey, guess what? This is my son and Thor's half-brother. And I'm like, was, was Odin getting busy with a storm giant? <laughs> a storm giant queen no less <laughs> perhaps odin has cuckolded nofia and then shows up later to actually kill him yes <laughs> so anyway that that's uh yeah uh that 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 yeah, at least that's my head canon. that's <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that's what i'm gonna believe yes okay strange tales 128 so yes we are moving on to strange tales and on the cover we see Thing and uh, Torch fighting with Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch. Uh, of course, swapping villains and heroes here between the X-Men and uh, Fantastic Four. And then at the bottom, we have uh, Doctor Strange captured by the Demon's Disciple, which is going to be the far superior story here. Uh, I will try to dispense with the uh, Thing and Human Torch section of this issue pretty quickly. Uh, we begin with Pietro and Wanda in the, you know, Brotherhood of Evil Mutants headquarters, and apparently they have been left alone, and Quicksilver has decided, this is our chance, we got to escape, this guy's evil, I don't care how much we feel we owe him, we have to get out of here. Which is huge, like, this is a major turning point in the Marvel Universe, and of all places, for it to happen in the Strange Tales Human Torch story, to have Quicksilver <laughs> and Scarlet Witch decide to break away from Magneto in that story, it's so strange. Now, obviously, it doesn't stick, you know, they end up going back to Magneto at the end, but this is still a major turning point. You were saying, like, oh, the Doctor Strange is so much ridiculously better than Human Torch. I think that's less true this month than it usually is. I think this is, it's a weaker... Doctor Strange story than we have been getting, and it's a much stronger thing, Human Torch story, than we've been getting. It's still not as good as the Doctor Strange, but it's interesting. Also, we should point out that this is story by Stan Lee, penciling by Dick Ayers, inking by Frank Ray. So Frank Ray is Frank the Akoya. I think it's how it's pronounced. Uh, okay. I, I would assume it's Jacoya, but I don't know for a fact. Um, I Yeah, it's Jacoya or Giacoya or Giacoya or something like that. Um, who is a major, once again, a guy who goes all the way back, I think, to the Golden Age, and at this point will be joining Marvel as a major inker, and is a very good inker. I think that Frank Ray, Frank Giacoya, is, you know, he's actually a good penciler, too. He'll very rarely get a chance to pencil, but he becomes a very dependable Marvel inker from this point on, and is indeed doing a good job on Air's pencils here. 
Yeah, he does. Meanwhile, uh, Johnny and Thing happen to see something on the news about, you know, the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Oh, yeah, and what is it? Something kind of funny here. Uh, on the news, it says, the X-Men have just released the first official photos of the infamous Band of Evil Mutants. It's like, what kind of release is are the X-Men doing? Like a press release? Like, how does that work? And then also official photos. Like, um officiated by who i'm not sure anyway we then have some retrospective look at when uh torch fought with uh, Iceman and some other related stuff pietro and wanda show up at the fantastic four headquarters and they're told oh yeah no you can't go up there lots of people want to do that wanda then uses her hex powers to make a uh, fire hose uh disable the uh guards Quicksilver then runs up the stairs very, very quickly and uh, is going to tell them, hey, we want to try to lead the bad guys and join the good guys. But, of course, they had just seen this thing about the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants on TV, and they're like, hey, you're one of those guys. Battle ensues, of course. Nice fight scene for several pages. We have stuff like uh, Quicksilver creating some kind of a vortex that ends up sucking Johnny up to the ceiling and bumping his head. Johnny is making a little fire net to hold in uh, Pietro. But then Thing has a an asbestos-like full body like diving suit basically uh that he apparently has available to him to just pull out and he gets himself all wrapped up i don't really think of him as being that uh vulnerable to fire in the first no time. that was my first thought here i'm like isn't the thing fireproof i guess does that ever actually come up whether or not he's fireproof you would think it would given how many times he's you know sort of uh roughhoused with the torch but apparently he he needs uh asbestos suit wanda uses her uh powers to somehow make the storm that's outside break through the windows of the uh baxter building and uh then you know break up the fight and then they're like okay that's right we can't deal with the humans we have to go back to the uh to the uh, evil mutants no matter how evil they are we belong with them so uh once again johnny and thing have taken a uh, peace offering from one of the villains of the Marvel Universe, or two in this case, and uh, completely just uh, deep six the whole thing. Yes. Yes, okay. it is uh, It is a problem. Um, they keep doing this. Um, but I think it's a good issue. I think that, you know, I feel like this really feels like a book that is written by Stan Lee. This does not, if Dick Ayer is, some people go like, oh, Stanley never wrote a word in his life. You know, he was just putting his name on these books that were being written by the artist. It just doesn't feel like Dick Ayers would say, hey, what am I going to do this month? I'm going to have Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch turn good in my book, Human Torch. That feels like just something, a decision that is way above his pay grade. This feels like a story that is coming from Stanley. And that Stanley has a vision for the Marvel Universe and is advancing it. These characters are very much in character with, you know, how they are in other books. And this is part of a gradual evolution of these characters, which is seamlessly continuing into this book and then back into other books. And this issue feels like an argument in favor of Lee's authorship. So my understanding of how, you know, the Marvel method worked during Lee's day, like during this period of time, was he would essentially give, uh, you know, a plot synopsis that was maybe two or three sentences to two or three paragraphs and say, go ahead and do this story. So I, I here I'm picturing, once again, completely just spitballing here, that um, Stan Lee said something like, hey, Dick, 
How about in this month, Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver decide that they're going to leave the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. They come to the Baxter building to uh, try to turn over the side of good. Uh, Thing and Johnny, uh, you know, don't understand what they're doing. They have a fight. And in the end, uh, Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch go back to the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. That You know, yeah. that might have been the plot that Stan Lee gave uh, Dick Ayers to, to fill out. Um, you know, there are lots of arguments back and forth about just how much, how detailed these things were or were not. That seems, uh, plausible to me, but yeah, you know, so even then you could just then still say, you know, Dick Ayers could have a real argument that he wrote the book. Uh, and then meanwhile, Stan Lee would have a real argument that he wrote the book, you know, because the, the basic plot points were, uh, were his, but then the actual plot itself, you know, panel by panel was not so yeah i mean it's gonna be a it's gonna be a a a question that is never going to be completely answered but uh i gotta say it is disappointing that the scarlet witch is pretty much useless in the fight against human torch and thing she sort of gets taken out of the action very quickly but she does get to have a nice awesome page of when she uses the fire hose as a snake to wrap up the guards and you get this sort of it's a nicely composed page on page five where the page centers around this sort of creepy panel of zooming in on Scarlet Witch's face as she uses her power and it it casts her face in this creepy light. And uh, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, well, and then also, as I said, she breaks up the fight at the end by actually commanding a storm to break through the windows of the Baxter building. Yes. So, you know, that's, you know, she she does have some uh, uh, some heft in what she's doing in this issue to some extent. Yes. Shall we move on to uh, the Doctor Strange tale in this issue? Yes. Well, first we get, uh, I, I don't know what order they have it in yours, but in mine, between the two stories, we get a Marvel masterwork pinup, Doctor Strange, Master of the Mystic Arts. And it is absolutely gorgeous. I think Dicko saw how good Kirby's pinup was from from Fantastic Four this issue and says, oh, I see how it is. I got to up my game, do I? And we have one of the all-time great Marvel masterwork pinups of Doctor Strange. In they, cheated, the they, cheated us, they cheated us of that. You don't have that at all? Not here, no. Oh, no. Not at all. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm, uh, I gotta go and check that, uh, hard drive that you sent me for Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, thanks for letting me know. I didn't know I was missing anything. That's one of the downsides of doing, uh, doing it this way is you don't, you never know what you're missing. Okay. Hey, man. So I'm gonna go. I sometimes miss stuff. I didn't have the entirety of Strange Tales Annual Number Two, which I did not have. <laughs> True. True. All right. I'm starting my timer back up here. So uh, this is The Dilemma of the Demon's Disciple, written by Stan Lee, unchallenged master of the dramatic word, drawn by Steve Ditko, unquestioned innovator of the occult illustration, lettered by Artie Simek, unabashed purveyor of the captivating caption. So, you know, hey, Artie Simak isn't being humiliated in this one. You know, I, I, that's not bad. This takes up right where the last issue left off. Dr. Strange is just returning to his home with his newly gotten gadgets and goodies. And as he gets there, he gets a knock on the door from a guy who's saying, the one who calls himself the demon, I was his disciple until tonight, until I managed to escape. So he's like, you know, basically, I didn't really understand this black magic thing. I was just sort of doing it because it's like, oh, wow, this guy's some goofy. But then he's like, oh, my God, this stuff is real. I need to get out of here. So the demon, this evil wizard, figures out that his uh, disciple has gone and sees that he's trying to get help from Dr. Strange. So then the demon transports the disciple 
back to his head, back to his lair and leaves behind the whole suit of clothes that the guy was wearing, except for his underwear. But for yes. some reason, he can transport just his underwear, but not his pants, shirt or jacket or shoes. <laughs> so uh, we have a nice look at, I guess, the orb of Agamotto is what they'll eventually start calling this thing, right? Uh, they call it the eye of Agamotto here, but I think eventually they'll start calling his amulet the eye. And this this little thing, this little floaty thing is the orb, right? Uh, okay. Yes, you're right. Here it's here it's unclear. But yeah, I think it, I think eventually that will be the case. Yes. And is it just me, or does that actually look very much like uh, some of the treasure in one of the panels for that, like, uh, adventure comic strip that you and I were trying to come up with back in the day? Ha, yeah. <laughs> anyway, the disciple is then imprisoned and entrapped by the uh, sorcerer, by the uh, the demon, who then does something with the spells to, like, deactivate everything. So it's, like, sort of going off the grid, mystically. Doctor Strange is like, oh, no, well, I can't find him. Oh, yes, I can. Here's this suit of clothes. So then he uses the uh, his amulet to reanimate the clothes and follow them backwards through time to the location from whence he came. But it's just lovely imagery, you know, and it's very similar. I was going to do some research and I didn't do it in terms of I forget which book it is that the Dr. Seuss book that has the pants with no one inside them. And oh, uh, right. This looks totally like that. This whole issue sort of has a Seussian feel to it to a certain extent. I mean, all yeah. of all of Dicko Doctor Strange has a lot of Seuss to it. And but this is one of the most Seussian images you will ever see in Dicko Doctor Strange is these pants with no one inside them walking along. And I did not look up to see what which came first, that ish, that book or this issue, partially because I couldn't remember what book it was in. Then we see the demon is using, well, I, I say Kytorax Crimson Bands. It looks like it should be pronounced Cytorac, but because it's always the crimson bands of Kytorac, I want the K to follow the K. One way or the other. I've always we said Cytorac. That... Well, you're wrong. So uh, we see them enclosing Doctor Strange, and oddly, once they're enclosed, they look like this rough, large gem that looks very much like the, what is it, the gem of Cytorac that ends up giving the Juggernaut his powers years later, or not that many years later soon thereafter. Yeah. Uh, so I just noticed that's interesting, that it looks very much like that. Meanwhile, uh, Doctor Strange pulls basically a sort of illusion thing. He somehow leaves his himself in the Crimson Bands of Kyderak while he sends a an ectoplasmic version of himself out to go and find out what spells this guy knows. And so then he knows what he, you know, what he can and can't defend himself from and what he can and can't throw at Doctor Strange. Uh, there we are. So then Doctor Strange uses this knowledge to defeat the guy. That's pretty much it. He sort of basically wipes his mind and that he will eventually come back to consciousness. But when he finally remembers what's who he is and what he does, he will remember that he was defeated and that Doctor Strange will be able to get him in the future. And then meanwhile, he says to the disciple, basically, go and sin no more. Once again, we have some really great, we have a lot of those weird, mystical Ditko visuals for this fight scene. Among other things, I really like on the bottom of page nine, how the amulet grows to a giant size and it's sucking all of these multicolored, differently textured bands of power uh, representing these spells inside of it. And it's, you know, just a really nice effect. There is one uh, thing that's uncharacteristically, well, okay, let me just, <laughs> on page eight, 
uh, panel two, we see Doctor Strange, we see his right arm kind of gesturing as though he's like, you know, taking a, you know, something is holding in his hand right in front of his face and then turning his palm facing downward and then moving his arm to the outside. I'm trying to describe what I'm sort of doing here as I say this. And I get that. I get that's what's coming across here. But that panel is a train wreck, I'm afraid. And it's especially surprising because what Ditko, one of the things that Ditko is really known for is being really, really good with drapery. Like just basically how fabrics drape on figures, on walls, on, you know, objects, whatever. Um, that That's really one of his strongest points and that that's where this fell apart here. Um, yeah. Also, his head doesn't look like it's in a quite the right location. It's like, if you got, if you, I can imagine how that could be anatomically correct, but I have to work at it and that's not how things should work. But yeah. um, that's, that's a relatively minor quibble. Um, and uh, I really like a lot of the visuals in here. Yeah, I feel like this story is perfectly fine. You know, after the last amazing two-parter with Dormammu, it is a bit of a letdown. The demon is a serviceable villain that, you know, will not stand the test of time and will not return very often. I forget whether he ever returns. But I feel like the main worth of this issue is just to show off Doctor Strange's new stuff. And you get to see the his new Ayabakamato do some awesome stuff. And you get to see, and there is... Now, there has to, of course, be a scene in which somebody opens a trapdoor underneath it to make it clear that from now on, Doctor Strange is levitating and he's like, ah, trapdoor does nothing because now I have my cloak of levitation. Not so, demon, not while my cloak gives me the power of levitation and while the host of the Vashanti can reach out to stop your flight. So, yes. And then it says in the end, and in the name of the all-seeing Agamato, by the seven rings of Ragador, we urge you to be with us again, Taman should. Yes, which I I looked that up. That's apparently a <laughs> I, that's apparently a Persian goodbye or something like that. And I'm guessing that he's just looking for anything that sounded exotic, Asian, old world kind of stuff. So you know anything from India or Arabia or Iran or anything like that. He's just going to go ahead and throw some of those things in there to be more you know, mystical and exotic or, you know, whatever. Like I said, I, whenever I see something like that, I'm like, I have no idea what that is. I got to put that into Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I wondered. Did, yep. Okay, well, Steve, that was four issues. So let's go ahead and wrap up this episode, but then we will go ahead and keep recording tonight and do the other four books from January, 1965. All right, that sounds good. And uh, hopefully this one has recorded... <laughs> has recorded well i see no evidence otherwise and uh we will be able to get these fine folks a uh a new a new episode on schedule yes god knows if this episode gets eaten too <laughs> then you at home will never know that because you won't hear what i'm saying right now but uh let's god let's hope this episode doesn't get eaten i don't want to have to do spider-man a third time no no at that point we would just say ah sorry the episode got eaten we're just gonna move on to the next thing yeah, you'll never know what you'll never know about the scorpion. Um, no, we would never do that. We would never do that to you. Okay, America, we will see you uh, in a week uh, to cover the rest of this month. Goodbye. Well, and uh, as for me, I will say goodbye to the rest of the world then. So, rest of the world, goodbye. Thank you for joining us. See you next time. Stay safe out there. Thanks for listening to Marvel Reread Club. 
please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to MarvelRereadClub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.